It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Women are bursting into American politics and breaking records. The number of women candidates choosing to run for local, state, and federal office is substantial, and these candidates are winning races. Christine Matthews co-founded Burning Glass Consulting, which specializes in women voters. I think what we're, we're seeing, the, the activism, is, is around women who had not previously been all that politically active, but they, they woke up and they said, I need to do something. What are the factors motivating women to run? And will this surge of women into politics change how our country is run? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival, held in late June. In the early 1990s, the number of women running for politics rose, partly because of the Anita Hill case. Hill sat before an all-male Senate committee detailing sexual harassment charges against Clarence Thomas, who now serves on the Supreme Court. Women were outraged by the spectacle and began seeking change in Washington. They ran for office in unprecedented numbers. Cut to today, many more women are putting their names on the ballot. Some ballots include multiple women candidates. The surge is likely a reaction to Trump's election to office, but it also has to do with health care, according to a panel at the Aspen Ideas Festival. New York Magazine writer Rebecca Traster leads our conversation with Ashley Niklos, Michelle De La Isla, Celinda Lake, and Christine Matthews. Niklos is a Republican from Tennessee running to fill a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. De La Isla is the mayor of Topeka, Kansas, and Celinda Lake is a pollster and political strategist who helps elect women to office. She runs Lake Research Partners. Rebecca Traster starts the conversation. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, I want to just say how surreal it is as a journalist who's covered women in politics from a feminist perspective um, for more than a decade now, and especially after the past couple of years, the strangeness of opening a panel on women in politics in 2018 and opening it with a kind of rousing who run the world and the idea that there's like a, a really sort of thrilling story to tell about women in politics <laughs> coming a year and a half after the 2016 election is still discombobulating to me. So, Christine, I'm actually going to start with you and I'm going to invite, I'm going to direct a couple early questions to individuals, but everybody's going to join in if they have something to say. Um, but I want to ask you a sort of big picture question about what are the patterns we're seeing? We Perhaps everybody in this room has read about a rush of women into elected politics, into electoral competition. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that wave means in terms of size, compare it to other historic moments for women entering politics? Sure. Um, so there is you know, a record number of women candidates running this year. So, so far, as of June 18th, 468 women have filed as candidates for the U.S. House. And the record is 298. So it is record-breaking. Um, Democratic women have broken records. They are, 350 women have filed as Democratic women, up from a high of 190. So they're breaking records. The story is probably much more women running on the Democratic side. Um, there's also 128 women running as Republicans. So if you look at it another way, and one of the great resources, if you don't know about it, is the Center for American Women in Politics out of Rutgers. 
and I'm um, one of the analysts on a program that they're doing called Gender Watch 2018. They're on all the social channels, and they have all these kinds of great statistics. So if you want to keep up with it in real time, Gender Watch 2018 and Center for American Women in Politics. So basically, 41% of Democratic nominees, 8% of Republican nominees to the House are women. And what we're seeing is tremendous enthusiasm, particularly on the Democratic side, for Demo Democratic women candidates. They're winning their primaries at twice the rate of Republican women. And that is true this year, but it's also been true in the past. And if you look at the historic trends, Democratic women have always had much higher success rates in their primaries than Republican women. One of the things that may have to do with is the fact that Democratic women, Democratic primary voters, think it's very, very important to elect women candidates, whereas Republican women don't say that. So for example, in, I think this was the CBS News poll, 84% of Democratic women said electing more women will make our country better. 19% of Republican women said the same. Big difference in terms of the value and importance on electing women candidates. In terms of what's motivating this surge of women candidates, I think we all can talk about it, but just really quickly, um, I think it's you know a variety of factors. Certainly, I think the election of Donald Trump in 2016, we saw the Women's March and a lot of energy come out of that. So there was a reaction to his election as president, number one. There was also sort of a belief that if someone like Donald Trump could run and win, maybe I could too. I think the other thing that's really been important, particularly for Democratic women, though, is, is health care. And a couple of things. Um, there was, if, if you guys remember, um, about this time last year, Republicans in the Senate set up a working committee, uh, senators on health care, to try and figure out the Republican version once they repealed the Affordable Care Act. Thirteen men, zero women, were on that panel. And if you look at it, it, it sort of felt very Anita Hillish. You know, if, I think we're going to go back to 1992 and talk about maybe that original sort of Me Too moment. Um, so there's that, but but also just you know, 13 men working on health care, no women. That's a terrible visual. And several of the Democratic women candidates that I've talked to or read about say that, that basically the moment that uh, the House decided to uh, vote against to repeal the Affordable Care Act with no replacement. That's what motivated them. So I think there's a variety of, of reasons for the you know the wave of women candidates, and I think we can all talk about some more. Well, I wanted as long as we do have two actual candidate politicians mm -hmm. on stage, I want to ask you each individual individually. And and Mayor De La Isla, tell me, you were deputy mayor in 2016, and you've right. been on the city council since 2013. Mm -hmm. Is that right? What prompted you to run for mayor when you did? Well, it had nothing to do with federal politics. I'll okay. say that. Um, I was very involved first in the housing uh, and credit counseling nonprofit, working with women, got connected with MANA, started going nationwide, teaching women about financial literacy, um, started a youth program in Topeka, and have now over 200 girls that come every year to the conference. So when downturn revitalization was occurring, they were looking for the young people perspective. They were trying to figure out why our kids were leaving Topeka, Kansas. And we were trying to understand how that affected quality of place. So they sought me out because I had all these youth programs. And I started getting involved and showing up at meetings that I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> Urban planning, walkability of sidewalks, the, the infrastructure, and all these things. And I remember just sitting there thinking, why am I here? But the turning point for me 
was when, after three years of trying to get the funding from city council, and starting to show up at those city council meetings, it was one of my mentees, Michelle Hubbard, who spoke up in front of city council and said, if you don't do something about this downtown and give us something for us to have fun at, we're all leaving. Downtown sucks. And that was the day that that vote got approved. Hmm. That just ignited this passion of just wanting to continue that whole, I feel like my, my purpose is just to empower others, especially those who feel like they can't, for whatever life circumstances they have to have a voice and be engaged. And I got into politics. So to some degree, it was about correcting representational Absolutely. failures. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, so that's fascinating. And I want to ask, Ashley, what prompted you, and obviously what Christine is talking about is a surge of Democratic women. women. Right. You're a Republican woman. What prompted you to run for office? Um, I felt I was most qualified for the office. I looked at, I have uh, six male uh, candidates that I'm running with. I like to say I'm running with them rather than against them because I'm running for the people of the second district. Um, I looked at their background and what their qualifications were and I decided that I was more qualified. So I put my name in the hat. I, uh, I really... When I deploy, um, just returning from the Middle East, I climb into my aircraft and sometimes it's 140 degrees inside because we don't have ground cooling. And that's only because the temperature gauge pegs at 140. So we're sitting there for an hour and a half, sometimes waiting for doing our pre-flight, uh, getting ready for our mission. And you're sweating, which is a great weight loss technique, I'll tell you. Um, and you're sweating and, and you really have to decide why am I doing this? And, and really what it boils down to is because I believe in the greater good. I believe in what we're doing. I believe in what our nation stands for. And I believe in going out there every day because it's a privilege for me to serve. I feel like a lot of our politicians have forgotten that greater good. And they are no longer our voice. And so I wanted to take that greater good to Congress, and I became very convicted of it. So the idea of bringing our voice back to Congress and the fact that I felt I was the most qualified. Has a woman ever held the seat that you're running for before? So the seat has always been held by a white Republican male, except for when Howard Baker Sr. died in office, his wife held it until the right. next election. Widow's mandate. So since then... It's, it's been in the, the same hands, actually, of a fam, the same family, the Duncan family, for over 54 years. But, um, you know, my view over Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria is much different than the view from Washington. And um, I think our politicians have forgotten what that view is. So in a sense, you're also running as a representational correction or this is that's part the idea that your view isn't represented by the, um, in, within the governing body. Yeah, and I would say my my idea of coming forward is more from the military sense rather than being a woman, because I've always just tried to prove my way as as just being the best qualified. Um, you know, being the only female in my squadron, 
um, it's just I'm one of the guys. And so it's always, it's more of the military perspective and making sure that we're represented in Congress. I'm going to come back to you specifically about the fact that the seat that you're running for has always been held in the same family, but I want to go back to the broader picture and, and go to you, Celinda, and talk about some of the resonance with 1992. So for those of you who may not remember or don't know, in the fall of 1991, when Clarence Thomas was nominated to the Supreme Court, and Anita Hill testified that he had sexually harassed her when they worked together at the EEOC. Um, she was grilled and treated very, very badly by the Senate Judiciary Committee when she was making her claims. That Senate Judiciary Committee, which was headed up by Joe Biden, um, was all white and all male. And there was, and the nation watched these hearings, and there was so much fury. This is one way of telling the story. There was so much fury at watching the treatment of Anita Hill, who is an African American woman. Um, and having her story dismissed, mocked um, by these white, this all-white, all-male panel that was going to decide the future of the Supreme Court, and that did so in part by humiliating and delegitimizing this black woman and her experiences. This produced such fury in women that many of them ran for office in 1992. There were other factors there were many empty seats in 1992. There had been a banking scandal, and a lot of sitting lawmakers had stepped down. So there were empty seats to fight for. But women ran in unprecedented numbers. And th these numbers are kind of horrifying in retrospect in how small they are and what a massive difference they made. Four women were elected to the Senate in 1992. Among them, the very first African-American woman ever elected to the United States Senate in 1992. One woman, 1992, one black woman. You want to know when the next black woman was elected to the Senate? The second black woman elected to the US Senate? 2016, Kamala Harris. So 23 women were elected to the House. These were record numbers, more women in that year than in, the entire, than in any decade preceding. Um, and one of the motivating factors there was this anger, resistance, a determination to change the, the representative structure, the powers, um, change the face of power. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about how this period resembles and differs from 1992. So I think there are a lot of parallels. And actually, we were Carol Mosley-Brown's bolsters, so um, the first African-American. Yes, that was the first African-American woman elected woman. to the Senate. Um, but uh, a couple of the differences. First of all, uh, women represented change. It was there was in 1992 uh, a great mood for change, and not just um, change in terms of women. Although you're right about the Anita Hill change period. I mean, uh, Bill Clinton was uh, a change-oriented election. Uh, Donald Trump was a change-oriented election. Um, it's hard to believe, but uh, well, if you're a Democrat, it's hard to believe. But Donald Trump won the election on character. 39% uh, of the voters said the number one character trait they wanted was change, and 80% of those voters be, uh, voted for Donald Trump, and change be caring about someone like me, being qualified, and being honest. People were ready to change ahead of that. So women really represent change now, and it's kind of interesting because uh, we also did work in Arizona when Arizona elected an all-women ticket uh, with Janet Napolitano at the head of the ticket. And we went in there, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because we were going to go find out why Arizona, of all places, wanted to elect all these women. 
and we had to discontinue the project because after the first night of focus groups, the voters go, oh, hell, we didn't mean to do that. We were just giving a finger to the system. We didn't think they'd all win. Uh, we had no intention of doing that. Um, now Michigan actually is likely to have an all-woman ticket on the Democratic side, so it'll be interesting to see if they will elect them and mean it this time. Um, but I think voters really, really frustrated, really wanting change. Um, the second thing I think is that, and this is different than 1992, although 1992 was certainly, there was a coming of age of uh, women's contributions and contribution to women candidates, and Emily's this was really starting to emerge then on the Democratic side and wish list on the Republican side of pro-choice women's list. Uh, but I think it was a real breakthrough when Hillary Clinton got half of her contributions, not half of her money, but still over half of her contributions from women. And um, these women, women do rely more on women for uh, their contributions. And as Gloria Steinem said, uh, let's not be remembered. If we die tomorrow, let's not be remembered for the biggest check we ever wrote was for a pair of shoes. Uh, write a check for a candidate. Um, and so, uh, people, re there's really a coming of age here of political giving, because women have had a coming of age in terms of economic clout. We now uh, often, almost half of families, the women is the lead breadwinner, and you talked about this in your book, but we don't tend to spend as much money politically as men do, and that's changing. I think the health care issue is a very, very big issue. It's not just that women are running. But we have, for example, a record number of women doctors running. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting, actually, to see you because it's hard enough to be a pioneer in the military and then go be a pioneer in politics, too. Like, how many different hats do you have to wear? And I think a lot of these women doctors feel the same way. How many hats do I need to wear? But when they hear uh, people talking so ignorantly about health care, like one of the candidates who we're working for, a pediatrician, Afghanist, a woman out of Afghanistan, pediatrician in the United States, author of children's books about women, heroes, and she was uh, elect. She jumped into office when um, a male on the, in this case, a Republican man, but it could have been, frankly, a Democratic man, said, uh, "Well, you, you, we don't need gun control because you could just deal with gunshot wounds by CPR," and she said. <laughs> With this level of ignorance on every level, I got to run for office. Uh, we need a woman doctor in the house. Um, so I do think that there is a, a level of frustration that women just feel. And then the last thing I would say is our politics has gotten so divisive. And um, I actually, eight years ago, nine years ago now, wrote a book with Kellyanne Conway. Trump's pollster, and we wrote it on what women really want, but we agreed we were going to write on the 80% of things that women agreed about, not the 20% of things that women fought about. And I still think today that women believe any three women in America can agree on more than Congress does any day. And there must be, I was interested in both of your language about how solution-oriented you were. Like, let's get some things done. Let's get some people to come together. And you're really seeing a surge of women run at the local level, too, um, because women just feel like we've got to move some things forward. We've got to get some things done in our communities. So those forces, it's like 1992 on steroids now. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for tuning in. 
The guest speakers in today's show include Celinda Lake, a progressive political strategist who has helped more than a dozen women get elected to the U.S. House and Senate. She was a pollster for Joe Biden's 2008 presidential bid. Michelle De La Isla was elected to the Topeka City Council in 2013. Now she serves as mayor. Ashley Nicholas is a lieutenant colonel in the Tennessee Air National Guard and the U.S. Air Force. She's the only female pilot in her squadron. She's running for the U.S. House. Christine Matthews is president of Bellwether Research and Consulting. Rebecca Traster is a writer-at-large for New York Magazine. She's the author of All the Single Ladies. Now back to our episode. Here's Rebecca Traster. Following up on your the dismay at discovering that the Arizona voters just wanted to give the finger and like, you know, change something. Do you think that that's a dynamic that is in play in some of these primaries? What's been happening in the primaries, as Christine mentioned, is really remarkable. Women are, and again, this is mostly Democratic side women, and I think the numbers, this is from late May, um, women were 43% of all Democratic nominees coming out of the primaries that had taken place up until late May. That is an extraordinary number. There are more than half of the non-incumbent nominees at that point. So women are winning primaries, and not only that, I've been watching districts where there are multiple women on the ticket, and voters have been concerned, like, oh no, we're gonna split the votes between women. No, no, the votes of the women wind up one and two, and the guys at the bottom. Is that impulse to just give the finger? And this is, we should also talk a little bit about Me Too and the climate in which sexual harassment is being talked about more and anger at male power abuse is being considered more. And this is something I've written about. Is there an impulse, a kind of give the finger impulse, like these guys have screwed it up. We got to get anything different in here that's motivating voters at this point, have you found? Definitely. (laughs) The the statistic that I would give you that's even more dramatic is women don't run in every Democratic primary, unfortunately. Um, But um, in the races that have had a woman run, 54 of the women have been, uh, 54 of the winners have been women, 19 of the winners have been men in districts that have had a woman run. Uh, So it's really even a higher number because women haven't run everywhere. Part of that is, though, Chris alluded to this, 59% of Democratic primary voters are female. Mm -hmm. Only 45% of Republican primary Mm -hmm. voters are female. And a big chunk of those female voters are born-again Christians. Um, Now, many many women candidates on the Republican side appeal to born-again Christians, but they're not a constituency. It's not like African-American women who want to go for the woman or college-educated liberal Democrats who want to go for the woman. Um, It's it's more tempered than that. So... um, I don't know that it, I don't think it's so much a finger to the system. I think that voters, well, if all of us up here had a nickel for every time we've heard, well, I'd vote for a woman if she were qualified, which gotta love because the men are doing such a great job. Uh, They're questioning our qualification. And I thought it was interesting, Ashley, you start out right away saying I'm the most qualified to establish that. No guy has to start out saying I'm the most qualified. They're just assumed to be qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think actually voters are voting for change, and they are voting for the people who can get things done. I, I think it's less quixotic because I think actually our atmosphere right now 
is so quixotic, so chaotic, that I think voters at the state and local level are actually thinking, you know, really, we got to get some things kind of stabilized, some things a little quieter, let's get some things done, let's not just be at each other's throats. So I think it's less of a quixotic vote and more of a let's get things done kind of vote. And I think it's kind of also career politician. Yeah, um, right. that's that's a big part of you know let's really get change and get the career politicians out so that we can have a new voice. Yeah, I want to I want to actually ask you now. I'm going to turn back to that question about the family having been in power. I noticed on your website that one of your promises and something that you've said is I'm going to go to the House of Representatives. I promise I'm going to go to the Re- House of Representatives, serve my term, and then I'm going to leave just as the founders intended. And the reason, one of the reasons I noticed this is because though you are running on the right, mm-hmm. I heard the exact same sentiment from a woman running a left campaign actually trying to unseat an incumbent Democrat in Illinois. Her name was Murray Newman. She ran what turned out to be a very, very close race against an incumbent House member named Dan Lipinski, who had, and his seat had been in his family for more than 23 years, I can't remember. And she compared it to kind of a a monarchy, as you just did on stage. And she also said to me, the founders intended the House of Representatives to be a body where people would come from all over the country, representing their different interests, professions, status, serve, and then go home. And to hear that um, from both sides of the ideological spectrum prompts two questions in me. One, is this, I mean, and I like that you're using the founder's vision as the argument for this. Is that designed to be a rebuke for this kind of grip on power that, that these guys, many of them white men, have had for generations? Well, I think it's, it's a way to fundamentally change the way what Washington has evolved into, because we've moved away from our founding father's vision. Um, especially in the House of Representatives where it's two-year terms rather than in the Senate where it's six-year terms. Um, We were supposed to come and be of the people for the people. Um, I've got four kids at home. I don't need to stay up there for 20 years, you know. I want to go up there and get the mission done. Um, Now, introducing term limits as a bill, that's something I think, you know, many have tried, but I think they forget or, or they lose the real side of it. I, I want to make it my mission when I'm up there, and I will follow it until it is completed. And that's how we really change, and that's how we make sure that our voices are heard. Because you can't have the same people up there continuously making the broken decisions. Um, also, uh, comparatively speaking, you, you say term limits and the idea of it is coming from the left and the right. We also see uh, a lot of agreement among veterans. Um, you know, there's a group with honor that has really tried to pick out different veterans that can work together because they know that when we serve, we serve right alongside each other. No matter what our background is, we're there to get the job done. And so I think we find a lot of commonplace among veterans, just as we do. There are many unifying issues. We just have to make sure to, to stop staying in our corners and acting like children and really work together to help the American agenda move forward, not just our separate agendas. 
I will also comment, and it's in no way a critique of this sentiment, because I'm in line with this sentiment, but I do notice that it's women who say, I don't want to have the power for 20 years. And it's guys who say, no, I, I would like to have the power for 20 <laughs> years. So or guys that say, I'll be there for 20 years, and then I'll run for president, because I see a president there. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. I see a president before they start their 20 years. Um, mayor de la Isla, I want to talk to you specifically about the job of mayor. As, as we've been hearing, this, um, this entry of so many women into electoral politics is happening at all levels, um, federal races, local races. And I know lots of activists who are particularly interested in mayors, in women mayors and mayors who are women of color. And there have been a number of women of color mayors elected in the past couple years. Um, there's Via Lyles in, in Charlotte, Takesha James in Bladensburg, Maryland, Yvonne Spicer in Framingham, Massachusetts, Muriel Bowser in Washington, D.C., and Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta. You're into and New Orleans and San Francisco. And yeah, there are, yeah, there are many more. I didn't read them all. But, um, <laughs> um, but I also know... The mayoral office is an executive position. And I know a couple of activists who have said to me, you know, women presidents are going to be made in mayor's offices around the country. Um, <laughs> you don't have to run for president right Hold now. Hold your horses. But, <laughs> um, but I'm curious about the nature of that particular job and how you see it within the context of a larger political career. Wow. So first of all, for... For me to start talking about how to see it in the perspective of a different political career mm -hmm. or aspirations mm -hmm. of anything bigger, I, I don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. My focus is just right now, how do I help Topeka become the best Topeka that it can possibly be? Right. And that's my only concern. Right. Um, so, but the way that, that it operates is, you know, very similar to the federal level. Mm -hmm. As the mayor, you are running the meetings. You, in my case, I have a vote and I have the veto power. Um, but in reality, you have the council members working and representing each of their districts. And everybody has a very different perspective. On top of that, to make the mix a little bit more spicy, you have a city manager that is managing the staff. So working with the private sector, working with the community, and getting that whole message unified across to ensure that the citizens are getting the best that we can possibly provide them by bringing out the best talent and the best, um, the best that each council member has to offer is, is, is a trick of, of, of hurting cats. <laughs> but, you know, that's leadership building. And I think, you know, helping to identify individuals that you can empower um, is part of the solution. And I feel that in, in Washington, they get so worried about creating their own little kingdoms that they don't help identify other figures that they can help along the way. You know, in, in the military, we always try to, the only reason to achieve rank, in my opinion, is so you can take better care of your people and you mm -hmm. help empower those below you because you're going to move out or you're going to move up and who you leave behind is a direct reflection of who you were as a leader. So that vacuum, I think, has been created in Washington and what you are doing on the local level is empowering others in leadership positions to move up. Absolutely, and I think that the reason that so many people are interested in what mayors are doing is the mayor and the city council level have the capacity of touching people. 
I mean, one of my favorite things to do is take a lunch break and go to a neighborhood or take a lunch break and go to a Topeka Housing Authority residence and talk to people, have activities with people, empower people to vote, to feel like they have access to their local government. Because what we're seeing is that at the national level, there is no trust. People are not voting. So as mayors and council members, we have the power to engage our citizenry to understand that they do have power, that their vote really does matter, that it is representative. And then that way, hopefully, my, my desire is to have in Topeka record turnouts of voting because we're having that constant contact with people. And hopefully, that starts changing the per point of view of my vote doesn't matter, it's not important, and we start seeing some change. But I think that that's what's exciting about the mayor position and the city council position. You have access one-on-one -on -one to people. You have a platform. You, you are, that's where real politics are happening. Not that you know, uh, Congress is not real politics, but it's wonderful because you have that opportunity to really influence and support and represent your constituency and empower them to vote and make a difference. You know, one thing, Rebecca, and this is here's your next book, Women in Executive Leadership, mm. because I think as I'm just listening here and I'm really struck by it, voters are very hesitant to put women into solo leadership positions. Mm -hmm. They think they're much better at collective leadership. And what I'm hearing here that is just brilliant is a redefinition of what we mean by executive leadership, um, where you're bringing in the grassroots up mm -hmm. rather than yelling from the top down. And I think a lot of solo leaders, a lot of male in both parties are too top down and not grassroots up enough. And the mayors as opposed tend to be more grassroots, but it's also very clear in the articulation here that women are, who are in executive leadership positions now uh, have a very different definition of what that is. And they have a 21st century definition that could really take us someplace. So speaking of grassroots up, I want to talk to you, Christine, about some of what you're seeing amongst voters right now regarding their attitudes about the women candidates, regarding their attitudes about party, and whether you're seeing an activation. We know that alongside this move of women into races, we have also seen an activist, civic engagement from women, from the Women's March, the, the protests against the travel ban, the um, health care protests that we were talking about, the work in Indivisible and on local and state elections. Do you s predict that this is going to shift voting patterns? Are you going to see more engaged women voters moving into 2018 than we have in 2016 and 2014? You know, I think that may be true. It's, it's weird to sort of say that the activists of 2018 and even 2017 are sort of, somebody said uh, middle-aged librarian women or something. <laughs> so in my state where I live, Virginia, um, in 2017, um, there was a very strong response um, to uh, what was happening on the national level, particularly uh, I think the Republican Congress and Donald Trump. Um, the and, and largely what was happening there um, were these pop-up groups. And um, Liberal Women of Chesterfield County, for example, that is a, a county uh, around Richmond. And they helped to elect two women delegates in districts that went from red to blue. And they, uh, as Tom Perello said, he said that these groups really punch above their weight. 
and, and are becoming more important than party structures and other things. And we saw it in the special election in Georgia that Karen Handel ultimately won, but I think it was, again, liberal women of Macon County. And, and so there's a ton of these. What, what was the, the other one? There's the strikers, too. The teacher strikers yeah. are right. engaged. I mean, in... in West Virginia, in Oklahoma, in Arizona. <laughs> I, I think what we're, we're seeing, the, the activism is, is around women who had not previously been all that politically active, but they, they woke up and they said, I need to do something. And, and whether that's starting a pop-up group like Liberal Women of Chesterfield County, whether that is you know, getting involved in attending city council meetings, whatever it is, or writing postcards, um, women who previously have not been involved said, I have to do something. That's one group that's particularly activated. The other group that's particularly activated that I'm really interested in is, is young people. Um, and, and I talked about this on the panel that Celinda and I were on um, yesterday. These, you know, the Parkland students out of Marjorie Stoneham Douglas mm -hmm. High School are going around the country, and they're going to 20 states, 50 cities, and their goal is to register 4 million uh, voters who are turning 18. My daughter happens to be in this category. So I think there's a lot of activism there. Um, so that's where I'm seeing activism. The, the thing that I'm finding challenging for Republican women um, so, for example, Martha Roby is an incumbent in Alabama, mm -hmm. and she initially criticized Donald Trump over the um, Access Hollywood comments. So now she's forced into a runoff, and now Trump, somehow they've worked it out, and Trump has come out and endorsed her. But I feel like, in particular, Republican women get punished um, in, in primaries for different reasons if they go off the reservation. Um, but, but I feel like it's challenging, and, and I don't know if you feel this way, Ashley, that... On the Democratic side, you know, women candidates are talking about health care and, and gun control and things that, you know, the Democratic primary voters are interested in. The only thing Republican primary voters are interested in right now is, are you with Trump? And, and that's absolutely true, and I'm sure you're finding that. So yes. how do you... Can I ask her this? Yeah, of course. <laughs> how do you deal with that? Because I, I feel like that's the disconnect, to, to be a Republican woman candidate and to have to, to, to declare your you know, loyalty to Trump, that, that must be challenging. I really try to uh, focus on the issues, um, the important issues. I think we get so distracted at times by all of this rather than focusing on the issues. And you know, that's what I, I try to make sure to, to keep in mind and to move forward with because that's yet another another way to divide us. Mm -hmm. but, but isn't all of this what you're, what you're gonna enter into? Yes. I mean, if you're, going to the, if you're going to the house, this will be the issue. And you know, I've had to deal with that since, um, gosh, since I was little. Um, people would ask, what do you wanna do when you grow up, Ashley? I would say, I wanna work for the airlines because I thought that was really the only way to fly. My dad was a commercial pilot. And uh, they'd say, oh, you wanna be a flight attendant? I'm like, no. Oh, you wanna be a ticket agent? No. Well, Ashley, you don't wanna throw bags, do you? And I said, no, I'm gonna be a pilot. <laughs> Girls don't do that, Ashley. And in fact, when I met my husband, I told him I loved him and we'd have beautiful children within the first 15 minutes because when he asked what I did, I said, I work for United Airlines. And he said, really, are you a pilot? Oh, and he wow. was the first person in my entire life who had done that. Um, 
it, when I was interviewing for a pilot position in a squadron, um, they said, and it's not my current squadron, um, they said, okay, Ashley, you realize that you're going to be a quota. And I said, okay. And I already had over 100 hours of flying. And they said, uh, so even though you're a quota and we need a girl really bad, we're not going to hire some big, ugly woman. Oh, and I said, okay. And there were two more conversations throughout the day, and it was the exact same line of uh, questioning. And um, at the end of the day, I said to the commander of the squadron, I said, do you all practice this? Because I've heard the exact same thing from you guys. I'm here not because I'm a woman. I'm here because, again, I'm the most qualified for this position. So the distraction I've had to deal with my whole life. But, but, so, but yeah. I'm sorry, I was going to just say, I think that what we were talking about with regards to you having to declare whether you're a Trump supporter or you're not, it's the same, I don't want to say stupid, but stupid argument that we're having in our nation with regards to who is Democrat and Republican. Mm -hmm. And it has to stop. The only P instead of party that we should be concerned about is, is people. I mean, so I think that we, we have the power to stick to the issues and, and fiercely advocate for the issues and for the people and for the issues that we have to be working on rather than focusing on either party or focusing on, on alliances. Because, hey, here's the news. Once you get elected, nobody really is your friend. <laughs> but, but wait, but doesn't that, I understand that argument with regard to... A, to the job of being mayor, where there, there may in fact be interaction with federal policy around sanctuary cities or whatever, but, but for being in the House, the, the Trump's policies, the administration that you're running to be in the House in the midst of, is enacted, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a distraction, it's not a sideline if the issues that are being debated and are in question, I mean, if you were in the House right now, the question of whether or not you supported Trump's immigration policies mm -hmm. would be very central to your job, right? Right. So I don't think that it's a distraction or, a, or a, in the same way, it's a question of the issues and, and what you stand for, right? right? And I'm, I was actually, though, talking about just the sheer fact of getting out of a Republican primary. Mm -hmm. You may want to talk about the issues, but I mean, I know this from Republican women candidates I've talked to and I've worked with. They go door to door and, they open, and, and they're doing their door-to-door -door thing, and the voter on the other end of that door doesn't say, what, do you, what is your position on this? What is your position? They say, are you with Trump or are you not? And a woman who was running for a state representative in Indiana said, well, you know, I don't, you know, he's the president, I respect the office, and he's like, nope, I need to know, are you with mm -hmm. him or are you not with him? That's mm -hmm. the question that Republican primary voters are asking. It has become a cult of personality party, um, and and I, that's why I was wondering about the challenge, mm -hmm. because I, I, you may want to talk about issues, but I feel like Republican primary voters, and I've watched all these Republican primary, primary you know, campaigns so far this year, they're only rewarding you know, who is the most Trump-like. And, and maybe you're finding that to be different, but I'm, I haven't. Well, I'm lucky in that I support much of the issues that Trump stands for, such as a Second, Amend a Second Amendment, um, reforming immigration and having a comprehensive overhaul of our immigration policy, smaller government, tax reform, um, national security, I believe strongly in deterrence. Um, so I don't have a trouble um, aligning myself with 
uh, most of the main issues that we have going on. So supporting Trump for me on issues is not a problem. Um, now, his personal life is, is something very different. Um, you know, there was a major distraction in office with Clinton. I mean, just recently in an interview, he said he had not apologized to Monica Lewinsky. Um, you know, so there's, there's always distracting factors, but I think we need to make sure to focus on the issues. You know, I guess one thing I want to point out, though, that um, I, I think everything that everyone said is true. The flip side of it is, though, that, um, you know, when it came to a budget compromise, it was the women who came together bipartisan right. When it's come to some of the health care provisions behind closed doors, and I truly believe, and maybe I'm being naive, but I truly believe that if we can get the ratio of women up in both parties, I mean, I, I agree with the premise of the book I wrote with Kellyanne, and I agree with almost nothing she's doing right now. But that said, I think any three women in America can agree on more than Congress does right now. Right. Uh, I don't care what their parties are. And so I, I do think that we have some hope for some behind the door. There are just a whole bunch of issues facing our country that really aren't that partisan right. uh, or shouldn't be. Shouldn't and that be. we should be able, at least maybe not the big picture things, but we ought to be able to move some things forward. And what is it, if uh, there is a study, and it's been proven, that societies that have more uh, a higher percentage of educated women are the more peaceful societies. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that says a lot. It does. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Our podcast is easier to listen to than ever before. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or find us on Google Play, Spotify, NPR One, or your favorite podcast player. You can also hear us on Sirius XM's Insight Channel. That's Channel 121. Here's the rest of today's show. Rebecca Traster. I want to ask a little bit about the structural support that these women candidates are getting. I wanted to ask a little bit about, there have been some complaints that, the, for example, the DCCC hasn't necessarily been looking out for and funding some of the women candidates. There have also been similar complaints lodged against some of the organizations that have done the most work to support women candidates historically, including Emily's List and more recently Planned Parenthood. Um, you know, everybody's looking for big institutional support and money. And I wanted to know what your perceptions were about whether the women candidates in these primaries have gotten institutional support or whether they're still viewed as an electoral risk? Oh, I think it's probably different by party. I don't know, Chris. Yeah. I, I mean, on the Democratic side, and, and I certainly have some critiques, but there's quite a bit of institutional money for women on the Democratic side. Um, and, um, you know, right now, I mean, honestly, the Democrats would elect Martians if they would take back the House. So, uh, you know, we're not really picky in terms of who we're funding. There are some, I think there is some... That's a good, that's a good opportunity for women to take <laughs> yeah, advantage of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so there was a time when, when our institutional bodies wanted the, the man wanted the candidates to look like them. Now, yeah. screw it. Whoever's going to get us there is fine with me. Um, I do think that there is a lacking in support of grassroots women politicians mm -hmm. who don't look like the traditional formula. 
And one of the successes, I think, and I think we need to develop it more, is small donor contributions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would also say, and we really, if we want to elect more people of color, if we want to elect more women, if we want to elect more veterans, if we want to elect more non-professional politicians, we must have campaign finance reform. And um, so I think no matter what your issue, no matter what your party, you ought to support campaign finance reform. Um, And so I think if we had more small donor contributions, more different kinds of pools, and we're trying to develop some of that, and there are some lists out there like Bernie Sanders' list, I mean, two-thirds of candidates he supports are women. We're trying to get that going, but we need even more of it. But I think the democratic institutions, and, and I've had some women that weren't endorsed and I thought they should have been, but in large part, it's pretty supportive of women candidates. Okay. Um, I also want to ask about some of the new approaches to running for women, because I've noticed, um, I mean, in part, it may be the Martian factor, and a kind of anything goes, and a post-Trump anything goes. But the approaches, having, having written about how women candidates have historically been coached to run, which has often historically been to sort of resemble the way that men run Um, and that counts for everything from the boxy hair to the boxy pantsuits to the um, but this year it's it's a tremendous shift in attitude about how candidates female candidates are presenting themselves there have been several tv ads in which women candidates have shown themselves breastfeeding their children there have been there's a the candidate for michigan attorney general dana nessel cut an ad post me too in which she looked straight at the camera and deadpanned who do you think is less likely to show their penis to you over a business meeting? Could it be the candidate who doesn't have a penis? And that was her sell for herself. If anybody has seen, there's an ad that happened last week um, that was released last week, and it went instantly viral, a Texas candidate named MJ Hager, who produced, it was a remarkably produced ad. Um, uh, she, too, was a pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it talked about domestic abuse in her home, the challenges she'd had becoming a pilot, um, the kind of barriers that had been put up sexual in front of assault. her, sexual assault. It was an incredible... You need to watch the ad. You need to watch it's the ad. It's a remar- it is a remarkable political ad. Um, yes. So can, could everybody weigh in on how what this does, the expanding the visions of what female leadership might conceivably look like and be plausible? So absolutely. out chime in on this one because when I ran my, my campaign, I was super transparent with my life. Um, so much so that I credit the YWCA with saving my life. I was the victim of domestic battery. I'm a single mom. I have a son with severe persistent mental illness. I have two girls at home. And one of the questions, and actually it was kind of interesting, I was being attacked by my opponent mm-hmm. saying, how can she do it? Oh, she also has a job. How is she going to be able to be the mayor? Um, I love the men in the, in the crowd, but it's a question that men would not be asked. Um, so it was, for me, the, the whole purpose of, of being so open and vulnerable, first of all, either own your story or somebody else is going to make it up. Right. Um, and being transparent is extremely important. The other thing was when people would tell me, don't do that, don't show emotion, don't mm-hmm. do this. You know, at least from my perspective, my hope is that people get to see that I'm nothing special. Um, I'm, a, I'm a tired, single mama that is trying to raise her kids and is trying to leave the community a better place. And darn it, if I can do it, so can you. So for all of you that are in here that are considering running for office, do it. And if nobody has asked you, do it. Because you can do it. You can do it. Um, and I think that that should be what we continue doing, just being ourselves. Because people start getting in trouble when they try to be somebody that they're not, and then they get into leadership and the cards fall off. 
So I, I think that it's, it, it should be this whole inspiring movement for women to understand that there is no, quote, special way that you have to be in order for you to lead. Just do it with your heart. This is pretty revolutionary, though, right? The, the, this ability to do it yeah. this way. Well, is, I mean, my husband, I, I always talk to my husband about uh, before I speak, and he says, speak from your heart. And then you never have to make any kind of excuses because you've told the truth. And, you know, I might not have a penis, but I've helped grow four with my children. <laughs> so, um, you know, it gives me a completely different perspective. But transparency, um, I mean, is essential. And bringing that is essential to Washington because that's what we want as citizens is transparency. And I think it, if we bring that, we can empower you know, other males to operate with, you know, transparency, because that's how we make the change. It doesn't mean that we're, we're different. I, I'm not sure. Um, are women more likely to bear their emotions? Um, I'm not sure. But, Yeah, the know, men cry more than the women do anymore in politics. I mean, I think <laughs> that there are two things that are really different. I think we're in an era now where authenticity matters. It matters for the men, too. The men are running more varied than they've ever uh, run. But I just think for a while we had to hide it because we were the minority. I think, secondly, the voters are really interested in the 360-degree view of the candidates, particularly women. And that's very appealing to women. And so I think there, there used to be, you're right, the boxes were so narrow and you felt like you just had to really fit in. Now I think it's much broader space. I think one of the best pictures, I mean, I also think there's a little bit of a factor here because of the flooding of the system. Right. I mean, my favorite picture after the Virginia State Ledge races and our firm, Josh Uliberry and our firm did those races and you had the 14 white men turn into 14 women. And it was great because honestly, if you didn't like a thin woman, you had a fat woman. If you didn't like an Asian woman, you had an African-American woman. If you didn't like a straight woman, you had a transgender woman. I mean, you had every kind of woman, so come on, people. Um, you got to find one that you like here. So I just think the, the flooding of the system has really opened up women to be who they are. Okay, so questions. You had your hand up over there. Uh, thank you so much for this great panel. I'm Donna Zarconi, and I run the Economic Club of Chicago. So a few days ago, um, Surgeon General Jerome Adams was on the stage, and he said health care is not what people vote about. What they vote about are his jobs, number one, and safety, number two. Can you, can you give some thoughts on that? It's just not true. How about that for a thought? Yeah, uh, plus or minus 5%. Uh, it's 95% wrong, plus or minus 5%. <laughs> I mean, health care is like the number one issue for Democrats right now. It's the number one issue for Democratic women. It was the number one issue that determined the Virginia state ledge. It's just not true. I mean, yes, people vote economics, too. Health care happens to be a major economic issue. Um, but it is, the, it is also the biggest issue that women are considered better on than men, followed by education. So... Uh, that's a little unnerving to have our Surgeon General have that view, but it's just empirically wrong, honestly. Christine, do you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, those are exactly the points I would make, too. Yes. I'm Sam Horn. I'm with the Intrigue Agency. And whenever we're talking with women about going into politics, the two barriers to entry are they're not willing to put up with the negative campaigning, yeah. and they're not willing to put up with the ongoing constant fundraising. Yeah. So your thoughts about how you can overcome those barriers to entry, please. 
So, at least in my perspective, I was extremely blessed. So I am registered Democrat, and when you look at my supporters, they were all male white Republicans. How oh, funny. <laughs> and uh, it was beautiful, just, you know, building on those relationships. So what I would tell any woman that's interested, find your army, find your group of supporters. Uh, my, my campaign team is still my best friends. We still have food together on a monthly basis. We still get together because we knew that going into this was going to be difficult, but it's so worth it because you could have such power in influencing people for good. Um, the fundraising part, I think I was, I was okay in that. I used to be the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, so my job was fundraising, and before that I did another nonprofit, so again... <laughs> Fundraising is more relationship building, and if you see it in that perspective, um, and people believe in your mission, in your mission, you don't really have to ask for the money. The money will come. Uh, you might have to ask for the money too, <laughs> <laughs> but I agree with you. Uh, yes, there's a question over here. I am asking this for my daughter, who's a political organizer and 22 years old. Uh, Great. What kind of advice would you give to her? She's already worked on some campaigns, including one in Virginia for a state delegate first Vietnamese-American woman elected. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to the young women? Chris, you should answer this. You've got one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. So I have an 18-year-old who's, you know, uh, very interested, very motivated. I mean, one of the things is, you know, who is it that one of my daughter's friends says, you know, your, vo- your vote is your voice. So to the extent that you can get out there and, and activate your peers, um, get involved in campaigns. We don't have enough women campaign managers. We don't have enough women campaign staff. It's hard. It's tough. But I think women, not only I think, women do run campaigns differently, mm-hmm. just like women candidates run for office differently. So um, just stick to it. Yeah. I'd give her two other pieces of advice. Run for office and hire one of us as her pollster. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I want her running no, right now. You're young, wrong. I want actually, her running right now. Another organization that she should, I mean, and that you should, running we start. all should be curious about is Run for Something, um, the organization that is drawing millennial candidates yeah. in. It was founded by two veterans from the Clinton campaign, and they have had an incredible success rate. They're drawing young candidates in, men and women. Um, I think their cutoff is 35, but it's sort of flexible. And they're bringing in people in their 20s to run for office why should this is and running start which is geared and then the second thing I would say I mean listen Bill Clinton decided he was going to be president when he was 18 years old at Boys Nation right so when I say she should should also want to be president yeah she should decide to run for office it doesn't mean she has to announce tomorrow for uh, a senator in in Virginia the other thing is she should start keeping a Rolodex Uh, keep track of everybody that she's meeting uh, because that should be her network to run for office in the future Great. I think Wayne Gretzky said it best. You miss 100% of the shots you do not take. <laughs> That's great. Do not limit yourself and never let other people impose restrictions upon you. And make sure that she is the best qualified for the job. That's great advice. <laughs> Rebecca Tracer is a journalist who has written about women from a feminist perspective for The New Republic, Elle, and Salon. Christine Matthews is an expert contributor to Gender Watch 2018, a project of the Center for American Women in Politics. Celinda Lake co-authored the book What Women Really Want with Kellyanne Conway. Ashley Nicholas is running for office. She's a combat aviator who just returned from the Middle East. 
Besides serving as mayor in Topeka, Michelle De La Isla is a diversity and inclusion representative at Westar Energy, the largest electric utility provider in Kansas. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Peter Kaplan, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.